Welcome. Uh, the rain may be falling outside, but the sun is in our hearts, and I think we're going to have a wonderful hour with this um, spectacular woman, whose book I've just dropped on the floor, <laughs> Joanna Trollope. So I have been a fan of Joanna for many years, and it's one of those moments that it still thrills and delights me that I get to interview her and talk to her in person, rather than just read her books in my little village in Yorkshire. So um, it's very nice to be here with you and with Joanna. So, um, and I loved, I really loved this book um, and I really loved Rose. So perhaps Joanna, you'd start off just by telling us where the seed of the idea for an unsuitable match came to you. Well, it, it came to me from a bunch of friends. I mean, friends who are my contemporaries who, um, well, inexplicably to me, I have to say, but obviously not to themselves, wanted to get remarried. <laughs> and did get remarried. And I'm talking of people not just in their 60s, but in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s. And of course, the problem about getting remarried, perfectly legitimate to fall in love and want to make some kind of public statement, um, as time ticks on, and it's a consequence of us all living so long now. But, of course, your grown-up children in their 30s and 40s have got views about this, which they have no hesitation in expressing. <laughs> so that was the seed of the novel. Would you read us a little bit from it, please? Well, I'll, I'll read you. Shall I read a little bit from the beginning? Yes. Just to get... So this is story time, everybody. So this is, this is how the novel opens. So uh, Rose Woodrow, who has been divorced for about seven years, has re-met a childhood friend called Tyler Masson. And she has fallen for him, and his feelings for her are even more powerful. And they are in her little muse house in the center of London, and they've just had lunch together. And this is, this is the kind of mood that the novel opens with. He had said it. He had actually said the words. All right, he'd been half laughing, shaking his head as if he couldn't quite believe what he was saying. And they'd been washing up at the time, so his hands had been in the sink, holding a saucepan to rinse it under the running tap. But all the same, he'd said, do you know, Rose, I have to tell you that I don't think, no, I know that I have never felt like this before. And then he'd put the saucepan down on the counter and turned the tap off. And he'd said, I must have felt something like it with Cindy, I suppose, mustn't I? I must have. He'd picked up a tea towel to dry his hands and he'd looked at her straight at her. And he'd said again, but I've never felt like this. I've never felt about anyone as I do about you. She was standing by the central unit in her kitchen, the unit that housed the sink and the sleek glass hob, holding the salad bowl they'd just eaten from, and that he had washed up by hand because she'd bought it 30 years before in Umbria and didn't think that it would withstand the dishwasher. She said only, oh, Tyler. He said, I mean it. She nodded without complete conviction. I, I know you do. He moved towards her and took the salad bowl out of her hands and he set it down on the counter. Then he took her face in his hands. Rose Woodrow, he said, I'm in love with you. And then we go on a bit, this conversation, which goes on and on and on. <laughs> and then he says at the end, he says at the end that he thinks that if anybody proposed to anybody, he's, he's a widower, and if anybody proposed to anybody in his first marriage, it was a mixture of Cindy doing the asking, that was his late wife, and me doing the assuming. And then he says to Rose, he stopped, she waited. He lifted one of her hands up to his mouth and kissed the palm. Then he said, the thing is, Rose, that I desperately, really desperately want to marry you. And that sets the cat among the pigeons. 
Before we dive into the fascinating and meaty issue around the whether or not your children have a right to dictate your love life to you as you get older, <laughs> I just have to say that as you were reading, I was thinking how much I enjoy the, the domestica. You know, I love the detail mm. of the bowl that mustn't go in the dishwasher. Um, and, then, and then I was thinking about the way... Um, I just love that detail in your books. Is that something that you're conscious of doing? It's of introducing the everyday, that quite granular level. It, it, I'm certainly very conscious of it, but I have to say that it's all these lovely people and their loyalty over all these years as readers that has given me the confidence just to put in one detail. Because I think when I was first writing, I had the feeling that you mightn't get the message, that I had to explain everything in case you got it wrong and you didn't quite understand. And then I realized that you understood completely, utterly. You were way ahead of me often. And I only needed to say one thing, like the salad bowl, mm -hmm. and that was enough. Mm -hmm. Because that salad bowl tells us a lot, doesn't it? It does, mm -hmm. it does. And also, if she'd bought it in Umbria 30 years before, uh, we were home and dry. You know, she is, <laughs> she is of a certain age. I mean, she's 64 and he's a little, tiny bit younger, but six months younger. Tell us a little bit more about Rose and her first marriage, because she didn't have to make a lot of decisions in some ways she during did. that marriage, did she? she um, she'd been married to a heart consultant and a, a man who specialised in heart operations. Who had be, He was adored by his patients, and he was a, even more adored by his staff, particularly his theatre staff in a major teaching hospital in London. And one of those, his, his main theatre nurse, he'd been having an affair with for about 20 years. Um, and she's, she's, she was called Gilly. And uh, he got a new job um, in Australia, running a hospital in Melbourne. And he and Gilly were going out together, uh, going out to Australia together. So he wanted to divorce Rose. So Rose. Um, found herself in her, wait a minute, she's 64 at the beginning of the book, so she's 57 when William announces this to her. And she says to him, that's okay, you do that. She was completely devastated by it because she'd always been, you know, the good wife, bringing up three children, all of that, doing a little medical translation on the side to earn a bit of pin money, but in a very sort of conventional way, not really doing anything too adventurous for herself. And when this bombshell drops in her life, she decides that she's going to have a house. So she insists on the proceeds, a huge amount of, of the family house in Highgate. She's going to take at least half the proceeds, rather more, and buy herself a muse house in central London. And she then goes on a course of DIY to learn how to look after it. So she learns how to hang a door, how to hang wallpaper, how to grout tiles, all these things on her own. And she's, abs she's suddenly got a taste for independence, financial independence. So she learns to not only to mend the house herself, but she also, she takes in lodgers, she does more medical translation. She does enough to be completely free of William. Once she's taken the money to buy the house, she is totally free, independent of William, and self-sufficient. And then she meets Tyler, re-meets Tyler. Tell us about that meeting. Well, Tyler has lived in America. His first marriage has been in America. It's been in San Francisco. He's married an American who is addicted to her father. That's quite significant. And he has two children. The younger one is a daughter called Mallory, who's an actress. Both, both his children, both Tyler's children, have done something, because their, their parents were always looking at something else, they were not focusing on the children, 
the children have both found other kind of religions, if you like, because of their neglect by their parents. So the older one, Seth, has developed a passion for making sourdough bread. It's become a calling. And the younger one has escaped into acting because she can always feel she can be someone else rather than face how she is, how her life is in itself. And the daughter, Mallory, gets a part. In, in, in fact, it's the Tricycle Theatre in Kilburn, though I don't call it that. But it's that little theatre in Kilburn. And uh, Rose goes with, uh, I think, a great friend says, come and see this extraordinary production. And Tyler has come over to see his daughter on stage after his wife's death. It's been an odd old marriage altogether. And Rose and Tyler meet in the interval. It's as simple as that. And then Tyler proposes to Rose. What does Rose make of that? She's blown away by it. Um, I never, I, I have uh, a kind of hesitation about putting sex scenes into the novel. I mean, largely because I think all of us have our own sexual fantasy. So it's much better for you as readers of my fiction if I lay out the sexual psychology and then you take the characters. You, you know the kind of people they are. So you personally take them beyond the bedroom door to do whatever is turning on for you particularly. And Tyler's very accomplished at that. And Rose has had um, a very sort of wham-bam, thank you, ma'am, kind of relationship with William. And so this is a, a very heady stuff for her. So her reaction is, it is amazing. I'm, I'm in love for the first time in a way, I am sexually satisfied for the first time, and this man actually wants to marry me, and of course I'm going to. And then her three children, she's got a doctor daughter who's about in her early 30s, and twins who are in their late 20s. And they have very different views of this happening to their mother. Would you read a little bit? more to us? Yes. Perhaps about the, the children's the response. Children. Well, this is a scene with the children. They're in the sitting room of Rose's Muse house. The children um, are called, um, Laura is the doctor daughter, and the twins are called Nat is the male twin, and Emmy is the female twin, and they are identical twins. So it's the same egg split rather than the results of IVF. So they've, they've all gathered in the sitting room of Rosie's house, Muse house. Emmy said that they had all been brought up by Rose not to be in any hurry about relationships, always to wait until the first giddy madness had subsided a bit before deciding anything about anyone. She was sitting on Rosie's sofa with a glass of wine in her hand and a bowl of crisps on the sofa beside her. And because her office in public relations prided itself on its informality, she was wearing jeans and boots, worn with a sleeveless t-shirt and an immense muffler swaddling her neck. Rose said nothing. Nat was checking something on his iPad. Laura said rather absently, Angus and I knew each other for three years before we lived together and then another two before we got married. There you are, Emmy said to Rose. Five years, and you've known this Tyler man for four months. I knew him, Rose said, long ago. But not properly, Emmy said, not really. It wasn't like I knew all the boys at school. They were just kind of there. I wasn't making a point against mum, Laura said. I was just saying. I think I take ages to fall in love anyway. I mean, Angus knew long before I did, so I'm not really much of a guide. Nat put his iPad down. He said to Rose, don't you think Emma has a point, though? 
don't you think this is all far too fast? Far too fast, at least, to think of marrying. Rose looked down at her wine. She hadn't touched it. It occurred to her that she didn't want to touch it, that she felt for the first time ever not much warm pleasure in having all her three children in her sitting room together. In fact, she thought, she was so far from feeling pleased and proud to have the children there that she really, if she was alarmingly candid with herself, wanted them gone. Nat was even sitting in the chair Tyler usually sat in. Rose would have preferred at that moment to raise her eyes from her wine glass and look across the room and find Tyler there and not Nat. It was, she told herself, an immensely improper thought. It was unnatural, unmaternal, unacceptable. But she could not deny that it had happened, that the thought was there. Perhaps, she said, not looking up, you would all allow me to know my own mind? Laura, absorbed in her phone again, said almost absently, of course. Not actually, of course at all, Emmy said. She had made a neat pile of crisps of approximately the same size and was eating the resulting sandwich in small bites. Laura, don't be exasperating. You don't mean it. You are just as concerned about this, this absolute infatuation as we are. I really can't listen to this, Rose said. We mustn't fall out, Nat said to Emmy, ignoring his mother. Don't pick on Laura. Maybe, Rose said, don't pick on me either. Emmy finished her crisps and took a swallow of wine. We're not picking on you, Mum, we're just worried. It's worrying when your mother suddenly completely falls for someone like you seem to have done. Rose looked up at her. She said levelly, why? Emmy made a face. Why? Yes, why? Why can't I have a life in just the way you expect, even demand to do? Of course, you're none of you used to there being a man in my life, are you? Because there really hasn't been one since your father. So I suppose I ought to expect a bit of overreaction. We are not overreacting, Nat said. Aren't you? Rose said. Wanting a meeting? coming round here in a gang to tick me off. Not tick you off, Laura said. What then? Just, Emmy said, picking up more crisps, to try and help you to see that it would be a good idea, or the best idea, to slow down a bit. Yes, Nat said emphatically. Rose looked at her eldest daughter. Laura? Laura looked up from her phone. She said almost vaguely, well, I certainly don't want you hurt to any degree, but I also think you should be allowed to make your own choices. Thank you, Rose said. At the same moment, the twins shouted, Laura, in exasperation. <coughs> you aren't helping, Nat said to Laura, and then to his twin sister, put those crisps down. Emmy immediately put the handful of crisps back in the salad bowl. Sorry. Isn't it odd, Laura said, her eyes on her phone screen again, how she's always done exactly what Nat says. I don't. Oh, you do, Laura said, raising her eyes. You always have. I mean, if Nat was all for this man in Mum's life, stop it, Rose shouted. Stop it. They gazed at her, three pairs of eyes fixed upon her in astonishment. Goodness, Emmy said faintly. You never shout. Perhaps, Rose said more quietly, I don't usually have cause. But I do now. I do. I will not have you dictating who I see and who I love. And I will not have you tell me how I should conduct my relationships. I have stood by you all, supportively, through all your emotional ups and downs, and I'll have you know I'd be no trouble to you as a mother. I've never asked for anything. I've refused you nothing. I never interfere or criticize. And now when I have a chance of happiness, no, not just happiness, but immense, profound happiness, all you can do is carp and judge and behave as if all I deserve is to be sent to some naughty step of your disapproving devising. Don't you think I deserve some support? 
don't you think, after all these years of what you've had from me, which I've gladly given, I have to say, you might consider see seeing things from my point of view, rejoicing that I've found someone who loves me, someone might, I might add that you haven't even met? Don't you think that after all I've been through, never mind all I've protected you from, that you might manage to feel just a fraction of the joy that this relationship brings me? There was a stunned silence. Then Nat, under his breath, said, wow. <laughs> I really enjoy the way, I, I imagine other people might feel the same, that my sympathies kept shifting throughout that scene. So one minute I'm thinking, yes, Rose, go on. And then the next minute, one of the more reasonable, you know, mm. every time Laura says something, I think, oh, well, maybe. And then... Yeah. Um, how do you feel you sit in that, in a novelist? Is it your job to take sides with your characters? Or? No, no, it's not. It's my job to show how every character has arrived at their point of view. So you have to validate each mental process, even if you don't agree with it. You have to show where the characters get from, because it's, it's not my job, really, to decide what all the readers need to think. It's, it's their job to do that. It's their book. It's their dilemma. It's their characters. So it's, it's not really a, a personal decision. And if I read a book by somebody who is definitely on somebody's side and is di dictating to me, really, however subtly, what to think, I feel quite resistant. I feel quite bolshy, you know, that I'm just not going to be obliging. Um, as a reader, I was on balance on Rose's side. Yes. Uh, I wanted Rose to tell her children to sod off. I wanted her to get <laughs> married to someone else. And I, of course, am of the generation of Rose's children, but I was on Rose's side. And um, thinking about this afterwards, I realise I find a lot of the people of my generation, they do aggravate me because they feel they have some sort of ownership and right over their parents, who usually mm. have given them everything. Um, so they I might have done, and, and I think, too, um, there's a great feeling of uh, wanting your parent, if you're fond of them, wanting them to feel fulfilled, because life goes on for very, a, a very long time now. But, you know, um, I have to say that Cathy and I have done this gig before. We've done it at Chiswick about three weeks ago, and we were... The, the, there wasn't just me on the stage then with Cathy monitoring it, chairing it. We were here with a writer whom I'm sure a lot of you have read and absolutely loved, called Kate Morton. The house at Riverton, clockmaker's daughter, you know who I mean. And Cathy and Kate, who are both of the same sort of age, were saying to each other, they were completely on Rose's side. They thought that um, it was really pathetic um, not to wish, particularly if you were fond of your parents, not to wish them every fulfillment, emotional fulfillment, all their long lives. Why shouldn't they? And so I just waited till they <coughs> finished this mutual um, supportive society. And then I said, and suppose your, your father is widowed and he falls in love again and you like the woman hugely, your, your new stepmother. And then suppose your father decides to leave his worldly goods to his new wife's, his step, your stepmother's children, not your children. And they both said, I couldn't bear that. <laughs> that would make me absolutely furious. You know, my own children are, are paramount. Because that is often where it gets very interesting, isn't it? It does. And in, in this case, it isn't just really about Rose and Tyler. It's about what their respective possessions are and how that all exactly. works. And then Rose's muse house that has been her sanctuary becomes a millstone of, mm. of, of, in a way, doesn't it, it? Well, it becomes the central issue, really. Because Tyler goes from being adoring to being slightly possessive. And he doesn't want... He, doesn't, he, he begins to be jealous almost of this house, of Rose's investment in it. 
and the fact that she has mended it, that she has lived there for seven years on her own. Yes, eventually I kind of was very happy with the way Rose ended up, not because of her giving in to her children, but because Tyler doesn't exactly. necessarily respond terribly well to the other pressures, no. does he? no. No. All very fascinating <laughs> stuff. I bet if we could get into everybody's heads now, you all have some interesting little take on Absolutely. this. Someone you know. Oh, I remember when Janet down the road and <laughs> all that, that sort of thing. So um, perhaps we could... And I, One of the things I really love about your books is that that's what they do. They are conversation starters, aren't they? They, they are. I mean, my aim is not, is not to tell you anything. It's, it's to get you talking about it, to get the conversation going because I think we probably, especially those of us, you know, with strong English roots, we're quite reticent as a nation, and we have a lot of elephants in the room that we can't talk about. But a novel could, could sort of get you going. Yeah. I've been having quite a lot of fun with my parents. My parents are very happily married to each other. Um, and I do, I've always slightly liked that theory that when people are happily married, to someone they're in love with, they're good at marriage as well as being good at being with that person. So I've always hoped it's that... quite difficult to be good at marriage. Mm, yes, I think quite a lot of people in this tent would agree. Yes. <laughs> so I have always hoped that if something happened to one of them, the other would find someone new. So since reading this book, we've been discussing all the time with quite, you know, sort of, oh, what what sort of person might it be, and what could they do that would make me change my mind from being sort of like, oh, go on, Dad, you deserve a new life, yeah. or go on, Mum, you deserve a bit of fun to. Yeah. Get that person out of my house <laughs> and away from your grandchild. Um, yeah, exactly Rose that. is a great granny, isn't she? She is. Yes, yeah, she's, she's a very good grandmother. And I kind of... Rose, Rose has two little boys. Yeah, and, um, I mean, Laura has two little boys. Because, of course, one of the many things my parents do for me is they provide an awful lot of childcare and support. Yes. And my son is the apple of both of their eyes. Of so the idea, then, that one of them might shack up with someone else and become interested in some other nine-year-old... Yes, exactly, is, is unbearable. And one of um, Laura's children, who's about four, he... He's bitterly resentful. He's really jealous of Rosie's commitment, emotional commitment, anywhere else. And he manifests this in a, in a very sort of typical childlike way, but it's very powerful. And it makes an enormous difference to her. It makes her think again. It's, it's a question of, again, it, it's the thing Emmy says about um, waiting for the giddy madness to subside. Because I, I had a conversation, you know John Humphreys of the um, Today programme. We, we had a conversation, I think it's about 10 years ago now, and he said he thought that falling in love was the greatest adventure that anybody ever had. And I'm sure that's right. It's unquestionably right. But it is this idea of being madly in love, emphasis, the, the telling thing is, is the <coughs> adverb madly in there. You do, you have slightly taken leave of your senses. And that's I mean, that's part of the exhilaration. Yes. Um, but, and Emmy's interesting, isn't it? Because part of Emmy's problem is she would like to be experiencing that giddy madness she on would. her own account. Yes, she would. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, there's all kinds of layers and, and various jealousies between the generations, which I'm sure are very familiar to all of you. Can we talk a little bit about um, social media? It has quite a benign role in this yes. book, doesn't it? Um, and I've, I've enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the way you dealt with social media in your... Um, where you sort of did a Jane Austen version, a take on Sense and Sensibility. I updated it because hmm. it was published in 189. And all I did was take Jane Austen's story, her characters, and exactly the narrative, and update it to 2013. And I remember, I think on the cover, there's a nice picture of the uh, yes, girl looking right. very traditional, but with uh, earphones, iPods, exactly. earphones in. Um, yes, it was, it was like a cameo. It was like yeah. an 18th century cameo. It's very clever. Yeah. Um, so perhaps tell us a bit about social media and what you think of it and how you address it in your novels. Well, it... It has to be in the novels. I mean, I don't do anything. I don't tweet, I'm not on Facebook, I don't do any of those things, but I'm, because, partly because I think it is the Wild West out there, it is completely unedited. 
and it, I think it's quite dangerous, but I'm very, very conscious that an enormous number of people do, and it creates um, a kind of community that is very, very important for modern life. So I'm, a, I'm aware of it at arm's length. So I, I know how it works, and I kind of, you know, I have an Instagram account, but I only look at various people's Instagram. I, I never join in. I never do, I never like anything. So I'm just, I'm just keeping, I'm keeping my options open. So I'm very aware of its power and its usefulness and its, you know, the propensity of modern life to be dictated to by it. So I, I know it's out there, but I'm not going to use it myself. And I know it's got to be in a book because it's part of modern life and I'm writing about modern life. But um, I find books, I have written, I have read various novels which are exclusively in the form of emails and I can't bear them. I think it's, it's so tedious, you know, and your attention slides off the page almost immediately. So I know, I know it has to be acknowledged in a, in a modern novel, a contemporary novel, but no more than that. You need to know the psychology. We always need to know the psychology. I mean, that's really what is fascinating about the human condition. So it's kind of thus far, it has to be acknowledged as part of modern life, but no further than that. That's interesting. As I do less social media, I've realised one of the things about reading novels from, you know, 15 years ago plus is that it doesn't feature. And that can be... It made me realise yeah. how much of it there can be in some novels, as you say, mm. written in... And how unrestful it is to read a novel that is made up of social media well, it's, posts. Well, it's like, it's like reading... Um, I mean, nobody reads Walter Scott now because of the Scottish dialect in them. I mean, it's, it's unreadably tedious. And it's rather the same... Um, I'm going to come to you, lovely audience, and, uh, and offer you the opportunity to ask questions after my next one. That was a little bit of a warning, so that when I do come to you, you're ready, <laughs> poised, uh, ready to be um, articulate and uh, wonderful, which I'm sure you all will be, no pressure. Um, so I wanted to ask you about how... Oh. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> When we do do the questions, by the way, there will be a microphone. Mm. I hope not only this one. We might be sharing this one. <laughs> oh, well. Um, anyway, if you wait for the microphone to get to you, hopefully that will all work. I wanted to ask you about Rose. Is there something about Rose and women and the, the way that she... It's quite a new idea to her almost, that she can ask for something for herself, that she can have permission to think about herself first and get what she wants? Well, I think that's part of the whole transition between the genders, which has been going on for the last, well, as long as I've been alive. And it's come to a kind of rather hysterical head with the whole Weinstein Me Too movement. And this, you you can see the nonsense that's going in with the going on with the Supreme Court in America at the moment. That um, you know the Republican Party is all men and the Democratic Party is all women, and you know it's really it's quite a basic sort of fight. Um, and I think there's there's one of the one of the ways that women have thought of themselves, because I think everybody, all the women of my generation in the tent will agree, we were all brought up very much to believe we were the second gender, that men were the first gender. And um, we, we kind of had to, you know, we had to be twice as clever. Because I, I remember when I went up to university, I went up to Oxford in 1962, and there were seven men for every woman there at the time. It was completely dominated by men, and really stupid men were there because they could row or run or do something of that kind, and it was, 
quite depressing. Um, and I think women, it's taking us a very, very long time to get to grow beyond the feeling that we need to be given permission to do things, to be liberated, to take control of our own lives, to be validated, because our opinion is, you know, just as valid as anybody else's. So there's something in Rose that, um, I mean, she's, she's obviously, you know, she's a really nice woman in all kinds of ways. But I think she needs, she's, she's earned a, a kind of freedom which she realizes that her relationship with Tyler is compromising slightly again. And the question is, what matters most to her? And her children do rather treat her like she's a child, don't yes, they? they? In sharp contrast to how they treat their father, who buggers well, off to the other side of the world with someone but else. But they're, they're not really very close to mm. their father. They, they have a great intimacy with, with Rose. Mm. And they, they're, they're quite possessive mm. about her. They're, and they're also... I think this is a very interesting thing about us middle-class people. I know it's used as a term of opprobrium um, by people who are middle-class. You know, it's, it's just one of the sort of fashions of the moment. But, you know, our veneer of civilization is paper-thin. We're, we're all a boiling mass of quite primitive, visceral feelings underneath. You know, Greek tragedy wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, on that note, who would like to ask Joanna a question? <coughs> I've got lots of hands. This is wonderful. So I'm going to come to the lady in the, the, the nice blue thing, and then I'll come to you, sir. And I think I have to hand over my microphone. Hello. Um, Hi. You always know your characters with incredible depth. And from a writer's perspective, does that emerge in your writing? Or when you sit down to plan a novel, do you plan the characters all out? I, yes, I, Can you tell I do, us about your writing? I, I, do plan, I do plan the novel. I, <laughs> I first think of a theme. So the last book, City of Friends, was about women and work. The one before that was about women and work. Um, this one, you know, is about late life remarriage. So it's, I start with the theme. Then I will plot out the, the dramatis personae, all the, the characters in it, the sort of family situation, where there's going to be. And I don't know the people terribly well then. I might know their names, which is a question, I have to say, of simply going through um, newspapers and periodicals, which I do uh, physically, I do with actual ones, until names leap out at me. And, and it's a question of recognition now. And then I will plot maybe the first, I don't know, 5,000 words, the first, the first five chapters, four or five chapters, because I don't know the people very well then. And then I always plot the end. And if it was William Boyd sitting here, not me, he would say that nobody here who thinks they are an aspiring novelist should ever even begin unless they know how a novel will end. He's, he's a great advocate of the ending of novels. I remember Angela Huth saying to me first once that um, when she wrote a novel, she had no idea how they, it would pan out. She just, she just started with a first sentence and hoped that the whole thing would grow organically after that. So I, my method is that um, I, the, the knowing how it's going to end acts as a kind of corset. So there is the organic possibilities of all the relationships developing in the way they do in real life in the course of a novel but they've got to end up at this place. And so that's a, that creates a kind of discipline. So I don't know the characters very well at the beginning. I know what they represent. I mean, I had an idea of um, the sort of man that 
Rose's ex-husband that William the heart surgeon was. Not my favorite kind of person um, of either gender. And I knew what it was, but um, he, he became more himself as the novel progressed, as I got to know him better. So that's really how it works. Um, and I write, I still write in longhand, and I write on A4 ruled pads, narrow ruled pads, with a margin. I'm terribly fussy about them. I don't mind what the pen is. Any old barrow I might have nicked from, you know, the hotel I was in the night before. And I write only on the right-hand side. So I tinker with, I edit on the left hand on the blank page all the time. And then when the, um, the books are done, when the manuscript's finished, and I write in a gerbil's nest of notes, because I do masses of research before I even embark on any novel. I mean, I know exactly where Rose lived. I photographed the Muse house and the cottage in the country and all of that. Um, they all go to the Bodleian Library in Oxford, because I gave them all my archives about three years ago. And then anybody who, um, any student of fiction, who is a serious student, so this means a Daily Mail looking for gossip, get, you know, they'll say no to them. But a serious student of creative writing is allowed to um, have a look at the manuscript and work out. Uh, well, they, they, yet they can see from my scribbles how it's, how it's worked. That's uh, a good question. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. You've almost answered everything. But um, uh, from a, um, once you've got your characters out and they've done all their thing towards the end, how uh, much directorial uh, uh, action do you give them? Well, they, they've become their own self by yeah. then. What I meant was, they, like, are, are, you, are you working toward the reader and the audience? You sort of just take them in hand and say, you can't do that or you can't do this? Yes, I, I, think, I think, you know, um, thank you so much for that idea. But I think, it, you know, it's up to you because I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be writing without this desire to communicate. I'm not writing for myself. I'm writing definitely for all of you and your, your kind of feedback. So it's as if, it's as if uh, with the characters, we're getting onto a railway journey um, where there is a, and there's a whole lot of people on it, the characters in the book, and they're faced with some dilemma. And we do, we do a bit of the journey with them. And then we get off the train again, and they go on. So I would never leave a novel without hope at the end, but I don't leave it with a perfect res resolution. You know, it's not going to be a happy ending with people riding off in the sunset together. It's not going to be that sort of thing. There's going to be possibility, but it's rather like the bedroom door. I want you to be you are all part of the process, so I want you to imagine what happens next. You know, what, hap what happens to Rose's future at the end of this book? You know, I may have a certain idea. You may have a completely different idea. Because it's, it, you know, it's a joint enterprise. Thank you very much. Um, I was interested when reading your novel in the relationship um, between Tyler and his um, wife, first wife, Cindy. Yeah. I mean, he seemed to be totally under her thumb or under the thumb of her parents. It and, was her um, father. Her father, yeah. yeah. And then he emerges in a different way here. And I just thought, well, if uh, Rose's children knew about all that, no wonder that they were very worried. Well, I'd, I'm not sure that they, they did know all of that. I mean, you know, you as the readers, as, as the audience, are privileged to know that. But I have noticed that quite a lot of fathers encourage a particular relationship with their daughters. 
So that in a way, um, Daddy is the most wonderful person ever, and he he's, represents an ideal of manhood that will never really be equated. I've got quite a lot of friends, and I see it happening quite often. So I think this is, this is a, a case of that. I mean, Cindy, the late wife, was absolutely seduced by a completely controlling father who made sure that neither of his daughters were going to have a, you know, a fulfilled relationship beyond his own existence. And I think that that does happen, sadly. It, it, you know, in an ideal world, it shouldn't, but it does. And so, in a way, um, I don't think Tyler realized, you know, as a lot of men wouldn't, and, and, you know, particularly young men, as he was at the time, I don't think he'd realize that till it was too late. And he's the kind of character, he's a very attractive, personable, delightful man. Um, and, but he's also, he's got that quality of, oh, well, better make the best of it quality, which I think we see in, you know, it's quite, it's quite human, it's quite common. You know, it's not, it's not a bad quality. But in the great scheme of things, it is unfortunate. But I'm not, I'm not writing about the ideal world. I'm writing about life as it is. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Someone who's never um, thought of writing a novel or anything else, um, I was mystified by what you said about uh, determining the end before you wrote anything at the beginning. Because if you, as you said, you don't know the characters particularly well before you start to actually write the novel, aren't you straightjacking yourself as you learn more about them as you write in, in determining the end before you've written anything? Well. Yes, up, uh, up to a point I am. I think that's a very um, perceptive question. But there's got to be, you've got to feel as a reader, you've got to feel that you're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing, I think. Um, I mean, for example, if you go to a really effective play, you are, in fact, affected by the structure of the play quite as much as by the dialogue. <coughs> the structure of a novel, of a play, is unbelievably important. And it's, it's true of all the great Victorian novelists. You know, they did know exactly what they were doing when it came to the structure. And I have the same respect for that as, as a kind of craft, as it were, as, as knowing what I'm what I'm doing. So um, I have when I'm when I'm plotting the end. I don't know. Um, I know roughly where the end will be. I, I know how it is going to end up, even if I don't know the precise details. So the development of character is slightly conditioned by the people there are. But I am really saying to them, this is inevitable, you know. This is what happens. And it mostly does happen, which is something that might be a result of being the age I am now. You just know when things are going to end well or end badly. So it's not a, it's not a totally inflexible thing, the end. I know the area it's going to be in, but I don't really know more than that. So that can be, you know, that the way the, I know the area in which the ending will be, but, the, but it will also be conditioned by the development of the characters as I, as I go along. So it, it, in a way I'm having my cake and eating it. But it's very important that you, as a reader, know that you're in the hands of somebody who kind of knows what they're doing. And as this is my 
I think it's my 21st contemporary novel. You need to know that. And I need to know that I can do it now. <laughs> Thank you very much. So that was a very interesting question. Thank you. Jo Joanna, I wanted to ask you, we were talking earlier in the green room about our own experience of being published and how yeah. the publishing industry has changed so much oh, since you began being yes. published. And I wonder if you could speak a bit about that and also your relationship with your editors over the years and how that has changed. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that your publicist is in the room. But <laughs> well, um, I've got a really fantastic editor now at, at Macmillan. Um, <coughs> I've had some really outstanding editors in my life. But when I first started writing. The first book I had published, um, I sent the whole manuscript in a brown paper parcel to the publisher. So, and this was, this was in, oh wait a minute, I can, I can do it far more clearly. This might have been 1974, long before social media or, or technology of any kind had come to the fore. And I know that because the, the book was published when my youngest was three, and she's now 47. So, I, you know, I've been at it forever and ever. And so we've gone from sending the whole manuscript off in a brown paper parcel to a publisher to now a digital version Goes, it goes to my agent. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have anything of the sort then. It was directly en face with the publisher um, all those years ago in 1974. And now it is it digital, digitally. It goes flick of a switch from my agent's computer to the publisher. And the editing process, I don't think there's a manuscript on this earth that isn't improved by being edited. I remember being told about the late and in often very great Iris Murdoch. And she would present manuscripts written, handwritten in paper, in pencil, to her editor and say she didn't want so much as a semicolon altered a grave mistake. <coughs> Those later novels would have been so much better with a bit of red ink on them. And I think the editor's contribution is enormous. I mean, I was, my first editor was a man called Tony Whittam, now retired, worked for Hutchinson in those days. And I learned so much from him about how to structure a novel, how to write dialogue, how to um, vary pace in a novel so that it was entertaining for people. You know, too, too many long descriptive passages are sort of unbearable. You need jokes, you need solemnity, you need a bit of melodrama, you need a bit of emotion, and varying the pace all the time. And then I had the great uh, Liz Calder at Bloomsbury for years and years. And she, most selfishly, she went and retired. I think she was about 70 when she retired. And I was brokenhearted. I didn't realize, didn't think I could go on without her there. And she was an extraordinary editor. And I've now landed on my feet again because I have a woman called Maria Rate, R-E-J-T, at Macmillan, who is, I suppose, Emma, you'd probably know, she's, what, in her 50s? And she's completely dispassionate. She, she can edit anything. She edits Kate Morton as well as me. And she, she edits a whole spectrum of things. And she is looking for authenticity in everything. She's looking for the genuine article, the truth, the, um, the kind of the, uh, the genuineness of feeling in a writer terribly, terribly important. But she can edit right across the spectrum. And as far as I'm concerned, she does tiny, tiny tweaks to my manuscripts. She will say, do you know, it would be an awfully good idea if um, we just knew what this character looks like. 
Um, it would be marvelous if we could just um, we could just put that chapter here rather than there because we need to know about this development in family life or emotional consequence or something. We just need it in a different place. We need to know about it before. She does the tiniest things, and the manuscript is vastly improved. So I think, you know, dear old Iris Murdoch, may she very much RIP, um, she was wrong not to be edited. I think everybody needs to be edited. It's an extraordinary thing and incredibly valuable. Do you, do you have a good relationship with your editor? Yes. You do? They're, they're terribly important. One last question. So yeah. One last one. Did someone down here? Yes, could we bring the microphone down to this lady? Thank you. <coughs> Well, Joanna, it's rather a um, light-hearted question. No, I like light-hearted questions. It's a charted, good note on which to you've end. You've charted life. Um, being, the same, sorry, being the same sort of age as you, I, I appreciate that you've written books about various stages in your life. I have, yeah. I'm wondering what the next one is going to be about. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, I, do you know, I have a kind of um, superstition about talking about work in progress. I'm nearly at the end of writing the next one, and it'll be published, I should think, about February 2020. So it's about 18 months away. But I have this sort of superstition that, you know, the, the bluebird of inspiration will never be recaptured by me if I tell you what I'm writing about. But it is, it is very, it is extremely relevant to um, the way we live now. Because I, I remember um, I was doing, I was in France, I was in Paris, in the, um, I think it was in the Galerie Lafayette, the branch in the Boulevard Haussmann. And I was in the book department downstairs. And a very um, chic French woman came up to me and, and she said to me in French, she said, I don't know what you think you've been doing sitting in my kitchen the last five years. She said, it's been really irritating. And it was absolute music to my soul. It really was wonderful, music to my ears. It really was just to say, just somebody saying to me, this is my life. Here I am, a French woman. Um, I, occasionally I do have to do the washing up, despite my appearance but you have been charting my life, which is really all, all I really want to do is just be a kind of handbook to the way we live now. Thank you very, very much. That was a wonderful note on which to end. Thank you. And thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much.